First important thing about creation. There are lots of important things about creation, but one of the things that God emphasizes more than anything is the land. He emphasizes this by creating the third day, which three is a very important number, and he delays the pronunciation of, or the pronouncing of good till that third day. But one thing that I forgot to mention was land is not only so important for you to understand that God created it and that he's the master over it, um, but it means that he has all authority over the land. This becomes extremely important because by, yes, he is authoritative over all creation by being the creator of everything. That authority over the land is one of the most important authorities that Yahweh has because it is the land where we find blessing. Okay, we already talked about this. There's no life in the sky. There's no life in the waters. And there's no life inside of anything, but there is life in the land. The land is the only thing that produces seed. The only thing that produces the agriculture, the crops. So our blessing is found there. So he has absolute authority over it, which means he has the right to place us in the land and take us out of the land. And that's very important for you to understand because then when we come to the second most important thing that's creating creation is humanity. And therefore he has absolute authority over humanity as well, which means he has the right to place humanity in the land and take humanity out of the land. Now, I know in some ways you think, well, okay, yeah, that kind of makes sense, and big whoop, big deal. But it is extremely important because obviously man is the apex of all things in creation, humanity. But the land is one of the most dominant ideas all throughout the Bible. Because when they get, when they sin, what is their ultimate judgment? They're kicked out of the land and he has every right to do that because he has authority over the land and over the human and then he's going to eventually scatter Cain and then the people of the Tower of Babel generation across the land he has the right to scatter them and dehome them so to speak because he has authority over both he's going to wipe out all humanity off the land and he has every right to do that because he is the authority over both and then eventually he's going to depossess Canaan from the land because of their sin and give the land to Israel. And he has every authority to do that because he is creator. And then eventually he's going to kick Israel out of the land of blessing because of their sin. And then he promises us a, restore, uh, a return to the land when the kingdom of heaven comes down to earth and everything's going on. And this is very important for you to understand as we get into big topics emotionally difficult topics of how can God wipe everyone out in a flood? How can an all-loving God exterminate the Canaanites at the hand of Israel? Now, we're not going to dive into those right now tonight, and definitely not the Canaanite thing. That's the book of Joshua and Deuteronomy. But, um, but the first thing I would like to say is, as just kind of foreshadowing the flood, and we won't really talk about a lot there, you and I cannot relate to what it's like to have a completely sovereign king ruling over us who has the right to do anything. We are post-enlightenment. And as post-enlightenment, that means man is the measure of all things, Protagoras said, the Greek philosopher. 
And so we are the authority of our things. That's rooted in the garden. We'll get to that in chapter three. I have now become the determiner of right and wrong. I become the authority on things. How dare you because I say. That's a result of the enlightenment. And therefore I can determine truth for myself. I can follow my heart, just do it, have it my way, an I universe. And then our country was founded on rebelling against an authority and establishing our own authority. And I know that, like, God bless America, and yes, he does, but you have to understand that the formation of America started against a rebellion against of authority and a violation of Romans chapter 15. Okay? So we are bred into this, how dare you? And even when we say, how could you, God, do this? That is a moral argument, right? But your only concept of morality comes from God. Without God, you would have no basis to make an argument against him. And so we're not used to this concept of God being completely sovereign over all things, and therefore he has the right to do whatever he wants. And whatever a righteous God does automatically becomes righteous and good. And whatever argument you throw at him is an argument that you only have because he gave it to you. And here's the other thing. If he has the only reason you have life to begin with is because he gave it to you. So even if he chooses to remove you from the face of the earth, that's more than you ever would have had if he hadn't brought you into existence. And, I, and so I just want to kind of say those ideas that yes, we acknowledge God as sovereign. And yes, we will say amen to that all the time in the church. But deep down in our hearts, you're still a sinner. And if you really truly believe that, then you would never be sinning anymore. And so no, that doesn't make it emotionally okay. And I'm not trying to wrap it all in a night nice little bow and say, hey, there you go, the flood's okay. Because also remember that whatever like uncomfortableness you have with that is nothing compared to the all-living God who actually created life and loves it enough to die for it. And so for that, I need to say, this is why understanding that God is absolutely sovereign over the land and absolutely sovereign over humanity literally gives him the right and the authority to do whatever he wants. And whether you like it or not, it doesn't matter because he's God. Now, I don't mean to say that in a really harsh kind of way. I mean to also add to that is, but he's also the most loving, intimate, pursuing, unconditionally loving God that there is. And thank God that it's not Allah, but it's Yahweh. And so in that sense, he ultimately desires, demonstrates his desire for you not to be removed by the, from the land by sending his own son to die for you. And as we go through the Bible, you're going to see the judgment of God. And the atheists in America wants you to focus on that and say, see, how can your God, how can your God, how can you do that? But my hope as we go through this is help you see the other side. Yes, that is there. We can't get away from it. And God wasn't ashamed. If he, if he was, he would have hidden it from us. God revealed that wrath in the Bible and doesn't blush or apologize for it. He could have hidden it like every other God does in their writings. But he chose to reveal it. But the other thing I want you to see is this incredible grace. That the God of the First Testament is not this cruel, wrathful God, and the God of the Second Testament is loving. It's that the God of the First Testament is a God of justice. 
And you want a God who gets angry at sin and deals with it. When people don't do that, they're called passive and unloving. But at the same time, he's an incredibly loving God. And yes, the judgment's there. And yes, the grace is there. And you think, wow, but the judgment seems more than the grace in the First Testament. That's only because we're a product of our culture who doesn't like to focus on that. I want to highlight that again as we go through. But the other thing to remember is that judgment's still there with the God of the Second Testament. Because if you read Revelation and you see what Christ said to some of the Pharisees, there's a still that there. Everything gets ratcheted up. So that's not like meant to be a comprehensive argument on this topic, but just an introduction to the idea of what it really truly means for him to be God of the land and God over. And, and can we really bring these together in a complete comfortable picture and idea and, mind, and thought in our mind? No. I mean, when it really comes down to it, I can explain certain things, but God is still just way beyond us. And there is a mystery, and I just really have to come down to the fact of, do I trust him? And as I look at his character all throughout the Bible, yes, both are there. And the question is, am I willing to embrace the tension, or will I cop out and say, I don't want anything to do with you? But... Let me tell you right now, for somebody who has literally studied practically every religion out there in depth, there are no good alternatives. There are no good alternatives. So you're actually jumping into worse beliefs and gods by leaving that. And I, and I know that nobody is like there, nobody's thinking that probably in this room, but I know that many of us still kind of, there's an emotional uncomfortableness with a God that does that, and that's Okay. Because that's a product of being created in the image of God. And I don't think God is emotionally comfortable with wiping people out. But that's necessary for him to deal with sin. Not to do this giant segue or rabbit hole, but um, that's just kind of the idea that you need to understand. So God creates the man, humanity, in his image. And we have that three lines, redemption, with seven syllables in each one, showing that man completes the redemption of creation. And therefore, he creates them to be ruler and subduer. And that's very important, too. If you don't understand that the image of God is to rule and subdue, then that changes the way you interpret most of the Bible and what God has intended here. The point is that God has given humanity an incredible sense of value and significance and purpose and acceptance in creation that no other religion gives humanity at all. So that brings us to chapter 2, verse 4. Or sorry, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, which is the end of the creation account. The heavens and the earth were completed with everything that was in them. Now, notice how that is a repeat of the beginning of this. So God says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And now he says the heavens and the earth were complete. So that creates bookends, showing you that this is a complete picture. But notice that he also goes in and he repeats it um, and it says, by the seventh day, God finished the work that he had been doing, and he ceased on the seventh day all the work that he had been doing. Um, God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because he ceased all of his work that he had been doing in creation. I know we often think of the creation account as a six-day creation. And technically it is because God was created on six days and he didn't create on the seventh day. But at the same time, it's still a seven-day week. And we know that the word, the number seven means completion, which means the creation week is not complete without the seventh. 
And that's kind of an anticlimactic, and the completion of all creation is God did nothing. Just sat on the couch, watched television, ate bonbons. Okay? I mean, that's the idea we get. Like, God's like, oh, that was exhausting. I know we don't quite go to that point, but he's just kind of sitting on this couch, lounging like some Greek god, and just resting, enjoying creation. Well, that's not totally accurate. This is the third most important thing in the creation account. Okay? Remember, not the only, just the third. And it's not in order of importance either. One, two, three. Um, just in chronology. When God rests, that word rest there has less of an idea of resting, resting because of exhaustion, like we think, but of a ceasing and an entering. Here's the reality. The point of the seventh day creation, or the seven day creation, is what makes creation ultimately complete. That God enters creation and rests in creation. This is extremely significant because in most religions, God is way up there and so transcendent that he never gets involved. Or, if you do have a Christian kind of view, you kind of adopted this deistic idea or agnostic idea where God creates the world, he winds it all up, kind of tosses it out there like a little toy, and then kind of walks away. And yeah, maybe sometimes he gets involved, and yeah, he's listening to your prayers, and he loves you, but in all cases, God's up there still, and we're down here, and sometimes he shows up. Like a father who just works most of the time, and every once in a while comes home and plays with you. Okay? That's a result of sin. The reason that God is not in creation anymore is because of sin. But the reality is God enters creation, which means that the creation becomes his temple. What is the seven-day creation account? It's God creating a temple. Why did God need to create to begin with? He needed something to do because he was bored? No. He had all this creative t- creativity all pent up in him and he just had to get it out? No. I mean, God is a God of creativity, and if he is a creative God, then he will always create. But there is no need. God is a relational God, and he wanted to have a relationship. He didn't need us. He wants us. And so what's the point of creating and then making man the apex of all things just to keep him on that side of the house, on that side of the universe? The whole point was for God to enter. And we ultimately see this because he's going to die on the cross in order to re-enter into our lives in an intimate way. And we're going to develop this temple idea a lot when we get to chapter 2, which will be tonight. But here is the beginning of it, is that God comes into creation, he rests. So in the beginning, heaven and earth were the same. The separation of thinking of heaven up there, which by the way is not really up there, it's kind of everywhere in another dimension, and that earth is here, that's a result of the fall. And we think that way all the time because we've only lived post-fall. And we are also a result of the Greek thinking. But in the beginning, God created heaven and earth together. And when we get to chapter 3, verse 8, it says that God was walking in the cool of the garden. That walking there is a relationship, an intimacy. And so God is creating. So if all, the, create, all the, the mythologies and every time somebody would build a temple, 
they would spin, they would build his temple, and then they would have a six-day ceremony. And on the seventh day, they would invite the God to enter into the temple and make it its house. And that's what you have. You have a six-day ceremony, except God's creating his own house. And the seventh day, he rests. He rests in the home that he's created. So he creates the land, which is his temple. He puts humanity in the temple, and then he enters in the temple to join humanity. And that was the whole point of creation. The whole point of creation was for God and man to dwell with each other. And when we get to the book of Revelation, Revelation ends on the note, and behold, I saw the temple, I saw the Lamb, I saw the city of Jerusalem, descending, I saw the kingdom of God, descending from the heavens, coming down to earth, and the Lamb and God dwelt with us here. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. We are taught all throughout the Bible not to wait for the rapture to take us up into heaven where we can go there. We, that's the product of Plato and Augustine and all of them. We have been taught in scripture to pray the kingdom of God down here. Because ultimately it will come to us. Yes, maybe there will be a rapture and you'll go up there, but guess what? He's just bringing you back. Your, your hope is not to escape creation, but to pray God back into it, so to speak for a lack of making it sound over cliche. Okay, and so we'll develop this more. Now notice there's something absent. He calls everything good. And not only does he call everything good, he calls it very good. And it brings an end to everything. So he calls the entire week good. But there's something missing. There was evening and there was morning. It's not there. You're like, wait a minute. That kind of violates the scientific account. You mean the seventh day is not a complete day? It wasn't, it wasn't a 24-hour day? No, because remember, this is not a scientific account. This is a theological account. So what point would he be making theologically with there's no evening and morning? There's no end to the day theologically, which means this. The seventh day goes on forever. That God resting with us without work that we are meant to rest with Him is meant to last forever. And when He commands us to obey the Sabbath, the Sabbath wasn't just about not working. The Sabbath was about resting with God. You see, we've legalistically made it about not working. And even though most of us probably are not comfortable with that limited understanding, we don't really know how to take it further. But when God commanded the Sabbath, you had to realize that the Sabbath was important because there was only one place that God dwelt with them, and that was in the temple or tabernacle. And there was only one physical way that he dwelt with them, and that was in the pillar of fire coming out of it, which we'll talk about more in Exodus. And there was only one day of the week that they could dwell with them because when you live 75 miles away with no horses or donkeys and that kind of stuff, and there's no like bullet train getting there, you can't just go to spend time with God every single day. I mean, yeah, you can pray to God, and yeah, you can talk, but not that physical space, time, and matter encountering of God. And so the Sabbath day, at a specific place where God was physically dwelling, was the only place that you could encounter God in space, time, and matter. And that's why that day was so important, because all other days, there were no other days like that day. Because all other days, you were working on the farm. All other days, the pillar of fire wasn't burning in front of you. 
And so what it meant was you would take that day to come to him in order to forget about everything and rest. But not just a ceasing from work. The word rest here is actually resting in Christ, like the book of Ephesians. Okay, is the rest in Christ. And the idea is this. You guys know what it's like to go on vacation. And your to-do list is still rattling through your head. Your worries are still rattling through your head. Maybe somebody in the family is still working with, on the job and calling back to the company and still trying to do things. And you're at the beach and you're like, just enjoy it. You're at church and maybe you get through the entire worship service and not once can you stop worrying about something that's in your life. That's not resting. Even though you're not physically working anymore, you're not resting. What God meant by rest was literally just resting in his arms and literally letting go of everything and knowing that he is God, he is good, and everything is in his control. And really, truly communing with him. Like really taking the time to just put everything aside, sit down with your kid, and just read a story and talk to them without trying to think about everything else, without stressing. That's rest. That's the rest that God meant. And that was only possible on the Sabbath day because that's where God was. But when God brings the Holy Spirit into us, this is why Jesus says there will come a day that one day is not more holy than any other day because it will all be holy. Now, everywhere you go, God is there. It's like the cat in the hat book or whatever, Dr. Seuss, wherever you go, there you are, okay? <laughs> every day, every minute is holy because God is literally inside of you. And so now every single moment is space, time, and matter, the Sabbath. At any moment, I can just start talking to God and He is there. Any moment, I can feel His presence wherever I go. And so that's rest. And so it means that any moment I can just literally be at work and everything be going crazy and I can just literally just rest in Him and surrender it all to Him and really just commune with Him. And that's what He's offering here. We live in a pinball machine with lights and being knocked around here and there and there and there. And God is offering us a rest that never ends. And what brings an end to the rest? when man chooses to sin against him. And this is why Psalm 95 comes in and says, today God is offering you a rest again. And every day that it's today is today that he's offering it to you. <laughs> okay? And the idea is that's what he means by rest. And so this is very important because if you, you need to understand that humanity, therefore, that the garden is the temple. And that the Sabbath is meant to be resting with God in a relational, literally nothing else matters except for Him kind of a way. And it's there that I find my true significance as the image of God. It's there that I'm able to find purpose, satisfaction. It is there that I'm able to take God with me as I go out, which will be talked about in chapter 2. If you don't understand those concepts, you won't understand what God is doing everywhere else in the Bible. Because the rest of the Bible is just a return to home. We've lost home. We're stressed. We worry. We're sinning. We feel insignificant. We don't feel accepted. We don't feel safe. And everything that God is going to do throughout the Bible from this point on is to get us back home. Physically and spiritually and relationally.
He is going to restore the garden. And that's why it's very important for you to understand the last chapter of Revelation is the garden coming down to earth. That's the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is to be walking in the cool of the day here in Columbus, Ohio, with all of our cities that we've built, with all of the churches, all of our communities, but we will be here and everything will be pronounced good again. And we will have a true rest with God and no sin. It'll be the garden, except we've built a lot and there's more people. That's the whole point. And so we need to understand what the garden is so that we know what God is getting us back to. Does this make sense? So what do we learn about God here? Remember I told you that this is mostly about who God is and not like how he's doing things. It's more about what, who God is and what he's doing than it is how he's doing it. We want the how the car works. God's not interested in that. God is more interested in who made the car and why does the car exist. Okay, and so that's what he's dealing with here. And so we talked about this. The first and primary reason of this whole creation account is that Yahweh is unlike any of the other gods. And so we learned several things from this. And this will be some review if you read that um, Yahweh's Mastery of Creation. But the first thing we learn is in all the other creation accounts, the pagan accounts, the gods are not eternal. They are birthed. There's a time that they did not exist. There's a time that they do exist. And there's a time that they will not exist. The Greek mythologies actually have stories of Zeus dying. Okay? Because people forgot him. And he dies through for forgetfulness. However, with Yahweh, he has always existed. Now, I told you about the Toledots. And the Toledots means the account of. Or the, it's a, it also means the generation of. Or the, the beginning of. Or some kind of a genealogy of. And the first Toledot begins in chapter 2, verse 4. But notice that chapter 1 does not begin with a Toledot because you'd be like, well, wouldn't that be the first place to start the account of? Because God has no account. He has no origin story. We talked about that. He has no genealogy. He has no beginning. The point is the first Toledot does not begin until chapter 2 because there is no Toledot for God. There is no Toledot for God. And so this is, he is portrayed as eternal. The second thing that we learn is that the pagan gods struggle They struggle out of the chaos and they battle the chaos and they struggle to divide and separate things to bring creation to existence. And even when they finally subdue the chaos, it's never ever completely subdued. And it's always rearing its head up. Ra, Abattles, Apophis, the great serpent, every single night. And yes, he defeats them to bring the day every single day, but he's going to have to fight them again and again. And again, and again, and again, there's no hope. But yet God, we see him just speaking. There's no battle. There's no competitions. There's no opposition. There's no great struggle. There's no like final climactic scene between him and the bad guy in the movie. And you're like, I think I know the bad guy's gonna, good guy is going to win because that's how most American movies end. But will it? Maybe they snuck an Eastern tragedy into this on us. There's no questioning of that. Okay, and so... And he doesn't do any, he doesn't have to keep battling to maintain his kingship. This is why Isaiah says, you have been the ancient of days from the very beginning. And you are sitting on the circumference of the earth right now. No question of that. The third thing is that we learn from him 
This is the, the pagan gods are responsible for creating this, and another god for that, and another god for that, and another god for that. Which means, you want good crops? You go to this god to pray for it. You want healthy children? You have to go to that god. You don't want a famine? You got to go to that god. You want victory in war? You got to go to that god. And you have to make a sacrifice to all of them. And maybe if you're lucky, they'll like you enough on that day to actually answer a prayer. But with Yahweh, he speaks every single thing in existence, only him, therefore he's responsible for all things. The fourth thing that we learn is the pagan counts either the gods are born out of chaos or they contain chaos within themselves. Yahweh is just good. He's able to pronounce everything good because he is good. The fifth thing is that the pagan gods are immoral. There's a part of me who would strongly encourage you to read a lot of these pagan accounts so you get a good idea of them, but there's another part of me who's like, no, no, don't worry about it. Okay? Because if you think Hollywood is bad, just read these Greek mythologies. And I don't mean like the little synopses ones that you find on Amazon or something. I mean like the real, legit stories. Okay? It's like the original Disney stories of Brothers Grimm are really jacked up and evil. Okay? That's these gods. Yet God is immoral. And he's not just moral. He therefore becomes the absolute authority of morality. So this is why God can say, be holy, because I am holy. And that's very revolutionary. There is no other God that speaks like that. And finally, the pagan consecration is merely an afterthought. We are an afterthought. We are the byproduct of drool off of a God's chin into this dirt, or the blood of a serpent. And it's like, oh yeah, we need slaves, or oh yeah, I'm starving to death, let's create humans so they can sacrifice to us, so we can eat them. The sacrifices. Sometimes the humans, too, depending on what God you're talking about. But yet with Yahweh, we've, already, we've, we've just spent the first part of this class talking about the significance of humanity, and the purpose and the value, so much value, that he would be even willing to die for you. No God would ever do that. That speaks drastically to the difference of all these other gods. If you have all you've ever known is an abusive father, and everybody in your neighborhood has abusive fathers all the time, to meet a family where a father was loving and generous and encouraged you and lifted you up would be mind-blowing and incredibly attractive. And something in you would be awakened and hungry for that. That's the Jews coming out of slavery in Egypt. That's Abraham. Joshua 24 tells us that Abraham was worshiping the pagan gods in Mesopotamia when God first spoke to him. You wonder why this guy just drops everything to follow a God that he doesn't know in chapter 12? Because no other God has spoken to him before. No other God makes him promises. No other God says, I will be with you. And all the other gods have done to him is cursed him with infertility for the last 75 years. This is hungry for that kind of a God. What we take for granted is revolutionary for them. This isn't about science, this is about relationships. And yes, all the science in this Bible is true. And yes, did God really create like this? Yes. But the metaphors are pointing more towards relational language than how exactly did he do it on a microbiology kind of a level.
And that's what we really long and desire for more than anything, too, as humans. Now, does this speak against evolution? Yeah. Scientifically, I wouldn't recommend you making an argument against evolution from the Bible. I just don't really believe in that. I mean, there's a lot of people that disagree with me, but the majority of people would not. I don't really think. Because one, I don't think the Bible is a scientific account, and you get in way more problems on a logical level than you do on a convincing them kind of a level. Second, if they're atheists, they don't even accept the authority of the Bible, so you're now arguing with something that's not authoritative in their life. What they do see as authoritative is nature and science. So start there. Now, that shouldn't scare you, because it, since God is the author of science, then that means that science will point towards him. And just like C.S. Lewis's mere Christianity, he doesn't start with the Bible. He starts with logic of how we all have this concept of morality, and then he moves towards there. And once he gets you to embrace a God who is moral, then he can take you to the Bible. And so when you're witnessing atheists, deal with the science, irreducible complexity. There are so many things in science that just scream God and intelligent design. And once they realize, oh, maybe there is a God, then you take them to the Bible and you say, let me show you how he's revealed himself to us, what he's like. And because that's where then you say the Bible shows us his character, relationship. I think that's the more effective way. And I'm not afraid of science, because God is the author of science. But does this still, where is your argument from the Bible against evolution then? It's here. It's in everything I've said. And in evolution, you're a random chance. You evolve. Why did we take this branch and not that branch? Randomness. Every atheist will tell you, unless they're in denial, your emotions are an illusion. They're just random chemicals firing, mixing out, and eventually, and they get in the way because they keep us from truly surviving. Your emotions make you want to die for somebody else. That's dumb. It's survival of the fittest. And eventually, they'll all get evolved out of us because emotions actually slow down humanity progressing to its best. In fact, if you watch like sci-fi movies and they predict this future evolution, we're just giant brains with no heart, Spock. It's not technically evolution, but they kind of do hint towards it. Planet of the Apes, the humans are just giant minds and they have no emotion or value for anything. That's the ultimate goal. Because this is all no significance, no value, no meaning. And so theologically, this does speak against evolution because you were intentionally designed. You have a purpose. You're not a random chance. You're not an accident. And God is behind it all. And so, yes... It will speak against evolution. It does speak to us today, just not in a scientific way. Now you're like, okay, but how many people actually worship all these gods? I mean, you're saying most of it doesn't have to do with evolution. Most of it has to do with these pagan gods. Welcome to the fastest growing religion in America right now. Witchcraft, magic. If you've really paid attention, watch your movies. Media always determines everything of what people believe. And when you watch the movies, most of it has nothing to do with atheism, has everything to do with supernatural stuff. And Wicca and witchcraft and all that kind of stuff is the fastest growing religion in America and Europe right now. And the gods are coming back. We've got movies like Twilight. It's about a god sleeping with a human in order to produce a half-human, half-child. you got Percy Jackson and the 
Olympians. You've got all these movies. You'd be surprised how many movies this idea of the gods keep popping up. And you'd be surprised how many people. Ask anybody that you know who's in college right now, and they probably all know some kind of a Wiccan or spiritualist or Satanist, and not in the way that we think of Satanists. It does speak. I know people who have gods in their backyard. And as the Hindus and the Chinese start coming into America, more and more and more and more, they've got gods. This does speak. The gap between the Bible culturally and us today is narrowing. And the only atheists left are the people under, over the age of 50. And there might be a few here and there that are my age, but they're mostly agnostic. And most of our students coming back from college are saying that everybody over 50 or 60 is an atheist, but all the professors under that are agnostic. They want to be spiritual, but they don't want to answer to a God. And so this is going to speak drastically to us in this culture. And hopefully, already with the Holy Spirit working in your life, you're already seeing how it's speaking to you personally.